This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Will there be collateral damage from President-elect Trump's economic policies for Canada, particularly to do with the auto industry? Uh, Trump, of course, has been active on Twitter over the last little while, and we're getting a pretty good indication of uh, where his presidency will be going by some of the comments he's making on Twitter. And the last couple of days, he's been focusing on the auto industry, and Canada should take note. Joining us to talk about this is Marvin Ryder, of course, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University here in Hamilton. He joins us here in studio. Good morning, and Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year to you, too, as well, and to all your listeners. And is it going to be a happy New Year? I, mean, <laughs> I, I want to put some connect some of the dots here, Marvin, sure. with some of the things that Trump has said over the last little while. First of all, during the campaign, he promised to uh, rip up NAFTA, mm-hmm. to ignore the auto pact with mm-hmm. Canada, and simply say it's the worst document. You, you know all the the rhetoric that was going on and the bombast that was going on with that. Yesterday he went after both Ford and with General Motors. Uh, and, and and some people may just want to put this down to more bombast, but, I mean, basically what he's saying is you're either going to build these cars here in America to sell them to Americans or you're going to pay a heavy price for this. That's, uh, that's pretty strong talk. It is. So, uh, Bill, let's just talk about President Trump for half a second. We'll get to the specifics of the car industry. If you were to visit the, the lovely castles of the royalty in Europe, you'll find that most castles had private rooms just for the king or queen and their family, and then they would have some public rooms, and one of those rooms was called the court. And every day the king would come to the court, petitioners otherwise could come there, and he would, quote, hold court. He would dispense his wisdom over the Mm -hmm. course of that time in the public rooms and then retreat to the private rooms. Well, the United States doesn't have a king or a queen, but they have a president. And this is the first president who holds court. He doesn't hold court in a physical place. He holds court online, virtually, and in particular, his favorite courtroom is Twitter. And, and Donald has made it very clear that whether when he becomes president on January 20th, two weeks from Friday, uh, he's not going to stop. So what does he do? Every day he releases these little thoughts, these little dribbles of wisdom from Donald Trump's fingertips, and the world is trying to figure out what to do. Should we react? Should we pay attention? Should we ignore him? And, of course, back in the good old days, you ignored the king or queen at your peril. So yesterday specifically, he was taking issue with General Motors. General Motors has... Um, uh, a plant in Mexico and is an expanding a plant in Mexico to produce a, an economy car. I want to tell you it's the Chevrolet Cruze, and they're going to make it there and then send sell it back inside the United States. And Donald says, that's wrong. That's wrong. I want you making those in the United States. And if you don't, we're going to slap a 35% duty on anything made in Mexico that comes back in. His, generalizing it means if you're an American company, and you choose to make product outside the United States and then bring it back in the United States, I'm going to slap a 35% duty on it. Now, he can't do that. That's not a power of the president. He can certainly ask Congress to pass legislation. Uh, But yesterday, just to give you a different example of this, the the House Republicans were looking to dismantle an ethics agency that were going to do oversight. Uh, They've tried this before, and they were all set to do it because they have this supermajority in both the House and and in the Senate. And Trump tweeted on that and said, you've got bigger priorities. Uh, Don't waste your time doing this. Focus on lowering taxes and balancing the budget. And what happened? The House of Representatives abandoned their plan to dismantle this. So the man, bless him, to me is acting like a king or a queen. He seems very powerful with his tweets. He seems to get action. You mentioned Ford. We'll finish this off quickly with Ford. Ford actually wasn't one of his tweets yesterday. His ire was aimed strictly at GM. But Ford decided to 
uh, maybe get on the King's Good Books by saying, you know, you know, we, we were going to build a new $1.6 billion factory in Mexico, um, but you know what? We're going to do that in Michigan instead, and we're going to add jobs. Right now there are 700 part-time jobs. We'll make them full-time jobs. This is in a new area for Ford. This is their autonomous vehicle division. This is where they want to start making those kinds of things, and we're going to do it in Mexico. Contrast couldn't be better. Here he's castigating uh, uh, General Motors yesterday, and Ford is kind of sucking up and saying, please stroke me and pet me, King Trump, and, and make me happy. The bottom line, Bill, for me is I just don't know what this man's going to do. I think he overestimates the power of the presidency. But on the other well, hand, he's the first president I've seen who has no um, self-editing button. He feels free to talk about anything at any time, and he scares the life out of everybody because nobody else has ever done this. No, they haven't, because he's 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 taking advantage of this, obviously, to to be Trump and 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 to use Twitter to to try to get these points across, and 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 I think your point is well taken. I think one of the major concerns here is that this guy doesn't seem to understand the powers of the presidency, what he's allowed to do, what he's not allowed to do, what Congress can do, and and will do in many of these instances right now. But at the same time, uh, you know, <laughs> I'll. I'll quote uh, Daniel Day-Lewis when he played Lincoln. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, uh, I hold an office of immense power. You mm -hmm. remember that line when mm -hmm. he's pounding his, uh, and that's, that's the way Trump is looking at this right now. Maybe he can't just rip up NAFTA. But he can sure influence what's going to happen. And when you look at the guy that you just appointed yes. as his, his major trade guy, uh, who's one of the guys that actually worked in the NAFTA thing, and he's, who's very much against uh, this whole concept of, of American companies shipping stuff back over into the Americas, you got to wonder where we're heading on this. So let's come back to Canada for half a second. Sure. So uh, what does any of this mean for us? Well, on the campaign trail, I think Donald mentioned Canada the sum total of twice. Um, we don't seem to be in his crosshairs. He doesn't seem to hate us. He doesn't seem to want to really change our relationship. So when he talks about tearing up NAFTA, it is really about the Mexican portion of NAFTA. But you can't do one without the well, other. fair enough. And so those nice people in Ottawa, they, they just don't know what to do. Yesterday, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and the American or the Canadian ambassador to the United States released a video on YouTube. Now, again, this is highly unprecedented, in which, in essence, uh, the Prime Minister and the ambassador said, here are the good reasons to do business with Canada. We just want to remind you about our longstanding relationship and how important our trade is. Our trade touches every state in the United States and so on and so forth. And basically what they were doing was sort of priming, if you will, or setting a stage for what could happen down the road. But we don't know. And so you take this trade ambassador. I believe Donald Trump's appointed him to be tough with China and to be tough with Mexico. But can he be tough with those two and not also at the same time tough with Canada? And, and if he takes the same stance, what's it going to mean? So again, to give you an example, you'll remember back in 2009, we had the recession ending and Obama was president and wanted to see a big investment in infrastructure. And so they were spending these, I think it was a trillion dollars on infrastructure, and it was to be by America, by American yep. only. No, none of that Canadian crap and other stuff like that. And, and Prime Minister Harper and our ambassador to the, to the United States met with them and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. We have these agreements, we have these agreements. And eventually, there was sort of a side deal that said, okay, Canadian things, yes, we, we'll let those in. Because, again, the government was fearful that all this money was going to somehow flow to China, flow to Russia. That may be the same question here. You know, 
okay, we understand your concerns, so let's take this 35% duty. That could mean that if General Motors makes a car in Canada and ships it to the United States, does that mean it's going to have a 35% duty? I understand if it's made in Mexico and it comes back in the States 35%, but what about Canada? So, did, I mean, Trump hasn't clarified. I know he hasn't clarified that, but how, and I understand Canada's, uh, I don't think anywhere is in, their, in Canada, in Trump's crosshairs at this stage, but. How can he? How can he be tough with China? Be tough with Mexico, but give Canada a pass? That's a that's a wonderful question. And and if I'm if I'm an auto worker right now in 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 you know the Ford plant in Oshawa in Oakville or, or or in Oshawa or down in Windsor, I'm 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 concerned at this stage because I figure if he's going to impose that duty that 35 percent duty, uh, as you've mentioned to us many times, most of the cars that are produced here in Canada go back to the states to be sold. I mean, we don't have the market here for all the cars that we produce. They get sold down in the states. Yeah, and vice versa. So even things like auto parts. Magna makes auto parts. They ship them to the states. They put them on vehicles. They come back. Vice versa. Our borders are very porous between our countries, and things move back and forth, and we really don't pay a lot of attention to it. Donald Trump could change it. So another term that you used was collateral damage. It is possible it is possible, we don't know for certain, but it is possible that Donald Trump wants to pick a trade war, a trade war with China, a trade war with Mexico. But as you point out, if he picks on those two, how can we not get hurt along the way? And that's what we mean by collateral damage. If he takes a hard stance there, how is he going to argue a hard stance against those two people and not against Canada? Uh, do, we, do we have to somehow for lack of a better term, uh, suck up to him or, or to, to somehow be on his good books? And then how does he explain that to the world? Or does he say, Cat, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to hurt you as I hurt them, but I don't really mean it to you. I really mean it to them. We just don't know. And remember, we're two weeks away from the start of his presidency. Um, this person he appointed yesterday as his trade representative is considered a hardline person. You pointed out that he's he's not keen on seeing American jobs shipped overseas and then particular products made there then brought back. Um, he too has taken a bit of a hard line on NAFTA and says, uh, rather than ripping it up, we'd happy to renegotiate it, but we want to renegotiate so America wins. And we've pointed out in Canada that, well, we're happy to renegotiate it, but not for you to win and us to lose, we're going to have to find mutually agreeable or mutually successful things to debate on. See, this is the thing I'm concerned about, and, and I think legitimately so, Marvin. When Trump says, you know, we want to renegotiate NAFTA, for instance, uh, to make sure that we win, and that's mm -hmm. the phrase that he's used, mm -hmm. his trade negotiators have used, uh, the concern here is they're going to go through this clause by clause and said that doesn't benefit us. I want it out. That does, you know, and in other words, gut the whole program. Well, that that's essentially tearing it up. Yes, correct. And, and, but we, we don't know that. And I do want to remind everyone that for the moment, NAFTA still applies. So we have a perfectly valid agreement. There are um, mechanisms in that agreement to take each side to court if they're not living up to the terms. So he, he, he either has to rip it up completely or in some negotiation make it so untenable that the, the deal falls apart. I don't think that's going to happen for a couple of years. In fact, I think we have it's kind of like a monster in a closet, if you will. We, we've imbued him with so many powers, and we're all so fearful of him. But I think he's going to discover there's an awful lot of bureaucracy in Washington. And something he says is a priority, it could take him two to three years before he even gets to it. 
And everything can't be a priority. That's another thing a president learns. There's only so many hours in a day. There's only so many uh, minutes I have to devote. He can't make all of this happen at the same time. So does he want to defeat ISIS? Is that his priority? Is it creating good-paying jobs for Americans? Is it erecting trade barriers? Is it building the wall to stop illegal immigration? He set himself so many priorities, he can't possibly deal with them one time. And I, I think on this one, I think on this one, there is more bluster than there is substance. What about the reaction from the Congress in, the, in a situation like this, Marvin? Because you go back to those days, those protectionist days mm-hmm. uh, after the recession, mm-hmm. when when everybody was, was south of the border was was into this. You know, we're gonna yeah, we're gonna rebuild st- you know stores and buildings and highways, and but we're gonna do it with American products. There was a real pushback from a lot of the bordering U.S. states that said, well, wait a second, you're going to kill our trade relationships with these guys across there. In other words, that may look good to you on a federal basis, but you're killing our our state economies uh, because of the cross-border trade that goes on like that. Are these guys going to rear up and say, President Trump, you can't do this? Yeah, and my first answer to that is, boy, I sure hope they would. But President Trump is a bit of a scary guy. Nobody quite knows what to do with him. Do you oppose him uh, at your peril? In other words, if I'm a governor who's facing re-election in a couple of years, do I jump on the Trump bandwagon hoping that his coattails pull me back into office, or do I I take him on and say right is right? Bill, another example of that is uh, as that protectionism rhetoric came up, people like the Canadian steelworkers and the Canadian auto workers went to their American counterparts and said, look, we have a common, common interest here. Uh, we have worked with you to fight dumping, for instance, of Chinese steel or Indian steel or, or Russian-made steel into our markets. You can't suddenly stab us in the back when it looks like it's going to benefit you. You need to point out the strong relationship between Canadian and American steel companies. And that actually worked to some extent. Now, will they do this again? It, we just don't know. Trump changes everything. He's the boogeyman in the room. He's what makes 2017, I think, even more worrisome, at least at the start, than 2016 ever was, because he's just an untested commodity. Uh, and will these people, these allies, step forward to support us going forward, or will they say, well, if that's the way the world is going, I'll jump on the Trump bandwagon? I just I just can't read it at this point. I mean, he... he boasted about the fact that uh, that you know jobs were being sent back to the states that were initially planned to to be going off seas overseas rather uh, some to Mexico, some to other places. I mean, is, is this the sort of guy who can look at a situation like this and said, you know, we're going to shut down Canadian uh, auto plants and we're going to bring those jobs back to Michigan and to Ohio. Uh, does he look at something like that? I mean, that would be a big political win for him back home. Mm-hmm. Well, he could. So certainly, Bill, in the great scheme of things, it's within the realm of possibility. Uh, if he is truly American first over everything, and even to his nearest neighbors and, and the longest unprotected border in the world between two countries, uh, he could be like that. And so then the question becomes, what is our response to that? Um, Justin Trudeau has had a year and a half of sunny ways since his last election, and although he's made some tough decisions and angered some people, say, over pipelines, he's got to figure out how to deal with this person. This is not Barack Obama. My feeling is, uh, as you know, many of these uh, leaders meet several times a year, whether it's the G7 nations or the, the G20 or they have the APEC or what have you. There are many meetings of these leaders around the world, probably six or seven times a year. And I'm guessing every one of these meetings, Justin Trudeau will want to have a little conversation with Donald to get his temperature that day and how is he feeling and trying to figure out the right approach to take. Will he have to be a hardliner? Does he, is he a conciliator? Does he negotiate? This is going to be a very, very tough choice for this prime minister, especially also, by the way, Bill, because I think President Trump is going to throw another bone to Canada. Here's something good news that's going to happen under the Trump presidency. 
I think he's going to approve the Keystone XL pipeline. So if I'm in Alberta with the prospect now of three pipelines that are going to help benefit the economy, I don't want Prime Minister Trudeau upsetting Donald Trump. I want to see those pipelines because they help our economy. Now, Trudeau's going to have to say, yes, but I can't just help Alberta's economy. I've got to find things that help Ontario's economy. Taking a hard stance, for instance, in the auto pact would be one of those. So he's got a very tough year ahead of him as he tries to figure out this new terrain. And, and understand just where this is going. I saw one story today, and I think it was the National Post, that said that some of Trudeau's advisors are basically saying, don't get this guy angry. Uh, because, you know, he shoots from the hip and then thinks about it later on, and, and that could cause irreparable damage. we got about 30 seconds left. Uh, is there a trade war imminent here? I mean, is, the, is that a possibility at this stage? That could get ugly. Yeah, if I was going to put odds on it, Bill, I'd say we're probably at about a 35% chance of a trade war starting. Remember, he acts like King Trump, but he's going to become President Trump. And I think once he becomes president, he's going to discover there are more handcuffs to the job than he realizes. But for the moment... He can be King Trump and hold court every day. We'll see if that changes when he gets inaugurated. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Right at the top of just about everybody's list, of course, is LRT. What's going to be happening with that file uh, in the next 12 months or so? And uh, fine-tuning it, uh, deciding where they're going to go with certain stops, etc. I mean, and, and some other elements that were discussed at some of the public open houses. And it looks as if council is going to start wrestling with some of those things, including... Uh, the possibility of actually making some accommodation for people that may want to drive to the LRT site and, and leave their car someplace. What a novel idea. Uh, one of the councillors that's been asking for that and pushing for that over the last little while is Terry Whitehead. He's the councillor for Ward 8 up in the West Mountain. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to bring us up to speed on that. Terry, thanks for the time. Happy New Year. Good to have you with us today. Happy New Year to you and all your listeners, Bill. Terry, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, gathering of information, which is what the open houses uh, that were held over the last number of months were supposed to do, and now what you as councillors are going to do with that. And, and, and let's, we'll start with this idea of parking, um, because this is something that I've heard from an awful lot of people, is that, listen, if you want us to use the LRT, I'm still going to have to drive to get there. Where am I going to leave my car? Uh, I, I, we haven't seen any clear answers on that yet, have we? No, and I can tell you that the research that I had done, um, it, pr- it was pretty clear that the successful LRTs, the ones that have uh, sustainable ridership and ridership growth, are the ones that have park and ride. Um, our challenge is that we're building an LRT from a node to a destination, um, not from a destination to, de- uh, to destination. So already we're starting in a deficit position in regards to optimizing ridership, again, uh, to keep the cost of uh, the operation uh, low. Um, so clearly, uh, one of the, if you're doing check uh, check boxes in regards to success, successful LRTs, park and ride was a big component, and and yet in this plan, uh, as it was originally uh, conceived, uh, there was no um, park and ride uh, that was even looked at. We haven't done a very good job of that in the past. <laughs> I, I'm embarrassed by the fact, and I've mentioned this on the program before, that uh, the Hunter Street GO station, I think we have the only GO station in Ontario that doesn't have parking, uh, which is totally ridiculous. And when I asked some of the previous councillors about this, they, their answer was, well, you can take the bus down there. Well, that, that adds extra time on that. I mean, you've got to accept the fact, and I, I'm glad that council's finally getting their head around this, Terry, that people are still going to drive their cars. They may use public transit for part of the trip, but they're still going to use their cars. Well, I can tell you that um, on the A line uh, currently, and that's from basically the airport to the the uh, to the um, coal station downtown. Uh, there is a park and ride at the airport. So, and my understanding is it's it's fairly uh, successful. So, 
you don't have to be a rocket scientist to say, look, uh, if you want to optimize ridership, if you want to uh, deter uh, more traffic through your downtown corridor, then you need to provide viable alternatives uh, to, to meet those objectives. And uh, the fact that they wouldn't even contemplate uh, over several months in this planning stage uh, a park ride, uh, it was just completely, this just didn't make sense at all. Well, I'll give you an example, a conversation I had over the holidays with a, with a neighbor up in Ancaster who's a, a football fan uh, and a season ticket holder and said, you know, I, I would love at some point in the future to take the LRT straight across town to go to the football games at Tim Horton Field. But he says, I've, I've got to get from where I am in Ancaster down to where the LRT stop is. And he says, where am I going to leave my car? And I, said, I, I don't have an answer for you. I don't know. But it sounds as if you guys are going to talk about this. Is there flexibility to get this done? Well, I know this much that uh, that you need two pre- obviously two premium locations for the park and ride somewhere where it ends and somewhere where it begins. And uh, I am a season ticket holder for the Tire Cats. I can tell you, and you know that uh, when you leave the game, it's, there's a lot of traffic. Sure. And if you start putting LRT down King Street, uh, there's a lot of traffic that is currently uh, being vetted out of there by uh, King Street. So it's going to create enormous amount of uh, congestion. So how do we optimize the use of the LRT? Uh, to alleviate that problem, uh, and it only makes sense, again, to ensure that you have uh, park and ride at either end of that system uh, so that uh, when people are going to a destination location, uh, that they can leave their cars in a parking lot, jump on the LRT, and get there. Well, this <laughs> this inevitably is going to lead us to the discussion about, boy, that uh, original plan of having you go all the way to Eastgate Square, where there's all kinds of parking, uh, is 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 still in somebody's heads right now? Is 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 that an option? I mean, are we is this carved in stone now that it's going to be the Queenston Traffic Circle, or do we start looking at other options? Well, my position has been I'm, obviously I'm not a big uh, big fan of uh, of the LRT. I think it's premature and and, and it costs too much. So having said that, it, uh, it it is on the uh, table, has been approved, uh, and we need to uh, do whatever we can uh, to make it successful. I did move a motion. Um, and it, it apparently a letter's gone off to the province saying, look, um, the original uh, plan, the plan that council actually voted for prior to the, this term of council, was from Eastgate to McMaster. Eastgate is a destination location, uh, and you've got parking capacity there. Uh, it makes a heck of a lot more sense, and it creates a greater level of uh, um, viability for that system. So, you know, I'm still waiting for the response back. I think this little uh, 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 the little piece on uh, the A-line is uh, going to be nothing more than a glorified streetcar and really isn't going to achieve the objectives uh, to the extent that's having uh, the LRT go from Eastgate to Macwood. Yeah, because I know that the answer that, that I got from staff when we asked about that is they said, well, from uh, from e- you know from the traffic circle over to Eastgate Square, that, that'll be another phase of this program. And it, it seems almost as if it's it's putting people off, Terry. They, they just say, oh, that'll be the next phase, or that'll be a future phase. Uh, and you know, you've been in politics long enough to know that a lot of time those phases just never happen. It, it, it's seemingly looking right now, because of what's happening in this province financially, as if what we're going to get is, is this initial line, and we may be holding our breath for a long, long time before we see any additions to it. Yeah, you hit it on the nail, and that's one of my biggest concerns when I hear from Others, well, this is only the first phase. Well, I mean, these people don't live in the real world uh, when they look at the finances of the province of Ontario. And the fact that they have one of the highest uh, 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 debts for non-sovereign uh, uh, governments in, in, uh, in, uh, in the world. So when you look at what our financial realities are, uh, you know that there's not a lot of new money coming. So if you're going to build something, you better build it right the first time. 
And uh, there was an opportunity, and I believe there still is an opportunity, to extend the ELRT system from Eastgate all the way to Mac. Uh, it makes a heck of a lot more sense, and uh, and, and it, it creates a, a greater level of success. Because uh, I don't think, uh, personally, I don't think it's going to be successful from East, uh, from the, the current location to Mac. And uh, Eastgate would only enhance the opportunity of success. So I'm still pushing for that because it, it just doesn't make sense to start in the middle of nowhere. Well, I'm wondering if this is going to get more people on side. You, we don't need to get into the idea that there's an awful lot of skepticism in the, in the community right now. There's a lot of skepticism still on city council about yeah. this project. What needs to happen to bring some of these other people on side? Is it to go back to that original plan, to start looking at Eastgate to, to McMaster? Well, uh, and, and the other element of this I want you to comment on, too, is, is you talked about it a second ago, is the A-line. But let's talk about the, the East-West first. Yeah, I think uh, there's two two outstanding issues. Uh, we still do not have a, a clear indication, um, AM and PM, uh, what the traffic implications are going to be. So how many of these cars that are going to be impacted by the loss of uh, traffic flow on King Street are going to be utilizing internal neighborhoods and impacting uh, local streets? Uh, so we still need that information. Um, the second piece, and the most critical piece, uh, and, and the one I think is going to be the showstopper is the operating cost. Now, if I recall, the operating cost currently, and according to Dave Dixon, we could do uh, up to 1,800 peak hour peak direction on the uh, on the King Street. The cost is around uh, five to six, seven million dollars. With LRT, uh, the cost is going to be closer to 16, 17, even eight, maybe 18 million dollars. So you're tripling the cost, uh, but you're servicing the, the same amount of people. And that, somebody's got to pick up that cost. So I think uh, if, if they don't have the math uh, and, and, and the operating agreement comes back where there's a, uh, a significant increase in taxes based on operating this one little single line, I think that's going to be a show. So I think that's what to watch for. Well, let's talk about that. I, I, I'll get into the A-line in a second, but you brought up the idea of cost here. And, and it, that's, let's face it, that's the elephant in the room right now. I think it's why still some councillors are sitting on the fence, not quite sure where they want to go on this. The answer we keep getting from Metrolinx and from city staff, Terry, is, well, that's being negotiated. I mean, <laughs> come on. We already know that somebody already knows exactly how this is going to roll out because it's happened with other LRT projects. So, you know, to suggest that Hamilton's going to be special and get a different deal, I, I think is a, is a little naive right now. We have to come to grips with the fact that, in all likelihood, Hamilton's probably going to be on the hook for at least part of those costs, aren't we? Well, no question. I mean, uh, the good news is that there was a template uh, set, finally, well after the fact, in Toronto, where the, uh, I believe the operating cost was hovering around $80 million dollars. Uh, uh, for the LRT systems, so the uh, in, in, so in that template, the province of Ontario has agreed uh, to take, I believe, the life cycle costs and the long-term maintenance costs of the of the system, and then everything else is borne by the uh, the city. So that is the template I suspect is going to be uh, pushed upon the city of Hamilton. And if that's the case, then why are we even using that word negotiate? And there's already a play in play here in place here to get this thing done. Correct. I mean, it certainly seems on on the surface that that is in fact the case. And 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 and, and the original LRT report, and that was the one from, I believe, from Eastgate to McMaster. They were still they were estimating. Let's be clear, it was estimating operating costs to be around eighteen million uh, a year, which is three times what we're paying now. So uh, it, 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 it it is a concern. Now, the only way the operating costs come down is if you get the ridership. Well, in the recent. Uh, um, uh, numbers that they've projected, 
by 2031, they're suggesting that we would have 1,300 uh, peak hour peak direction, which is well below the 2,000 set out by two directors of transit in the city of Hamilton as, as where you would hit the point of viability. So I, I am concerned uh, from a cost perspective, you don't get ridership. It's a cheaper cost because it can carry more people. But the problem is if you don't get more people, uh, then the cost is borne by the taxpayer. There are still people in this community, probably a lot of them in, in Ward 8 and Ward 7 and Ward 6 for that matter, that feel as if the, 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 the infrastructure investment here should have been from downtown up to the airport, which is where the import, employment lands are going to be populated quite soon. Uh, you, you know Upper James as well as anybody in the city, and you know that it's badly in need of enhanced transit right now. But with this talk about, well, that'll be a future phase, a future phase, uh, is that in peril that that may never happen, that we may never actually see those enhancements? I, I think that we're going to see it in a different form. Uh, and I, I, I've said that from day one. I remember sitting down with uh, Rob McIsaac when he was the president of Mullen College and made the arguments why, if you were going to do an LRT system or focus on a higher order transit, why going from the airport to uh, our GO station, which inevitably would become our, our union station in the city of Hamilton, uh, makes a hell of a lot more sense. When you think about uh, one of the objectives of the province of Ontario is that uh, 80% of the uh, um, economy, uh, movement of goods, comes through the southwestern uh, Ontario corridor. Eight, that's 80% of Canada's commerce. So if those highways are getting plugged up and they're doing all this kind of research and study trying to do a better way to, to move those goods, they want to get more cars off the highways. Well, how do you do that? Well, you need to make it easy for people to get to the GO Transit systems. Well, how do you do that? Well, you don't run a parallel system to the very service that will, will meet that objective, and that is your GO Transit. So that's why I believe the A-Line uh, makes a lot more sense. One, it goes through the highest populated area of the city, uh, two, and, and where the growth is. Two, that's where all your new employment lands are going to be. Uh, and three, it meets the objective of encouraging more people to take gold transit than um, driving their cars on the highways. Is that still an option as far as you're concerned? Well, it's, again, a different mode. So I think that we might uh, uh, be talking about uh, uh, an A-Express, uh, part of a blast network, or even a, a, a hybrid BRT system. But some form or fashion, uh, they need to enhance that service. No question about that. Well, when you look at the population growth on the South Mountain and, and the fact that people are going to want to go up to the airport because there are going to be jobs there, uh, we've got to do something about transit there. And, and I think the concern I'm hearing from an awful lot of people is, yeah, where's that investment coming from? Because at some point, some future government, or maybe even this government, if they get reelected, I don't know what's going to happen in 2018, uh, is going to say, yeah, you know what, there are no more phases. We're out of money. Uh, you guys, you, you got what you got, and that's all you're going to get at this stage. And, and so, you know, then that's the concern at that point, obviously, Terry, is that people are going to say, well, now it's up to Hamilton taxpayers if you want more. So, Bill, uh, uh, it took us, and you, you're a counselor, and I think uh, um, pundits, people that appreciate uh, financial capacity have a better understanding of, of, of the false hope that we're going to see uh, billions of dollars uh, to continue second and third phases of LRT systems or higher order transit systems in the cities. Uh, in, in the near future. That is just not even practical. Uh, the reality is is that it took us over 40 years to get this funding. Uh, I don't believe because of the debt where the province is currently that we're going to see those dollars uh, for additional phases for the next you know, 30, 40 years. Uh, so what do you do in the meantime? Which leads us to the next question. 
what do you do? And part B to that question is who's going to pay for it? And if the province says we're tapped out, you're not getting any more money from us, then it's either up to Hamilton taxpayers, and we already know what the situation here as far as the burden on Hamilton property taxpayers is, uh, which forces council to make a decision as to whether or not there are going to be any other phases. The BLAST program, is you and I talked about this before Christmas, is a wonderful concept, and I endorse it totally. I just don't know where the money's going to come from. Well, the, I can tell you the BLAST network is a heck of a lot more affordable. I mean, I mean, if, if we had to do this all over again, if we had the billion dollars, we could have uh, a strong BRT system from Eastgate to Dundas. We could have a strong BRT system from the airport to the uh, GO station. And we could probably implement uh, uh, a couple of the BLAST network uh, pieces in the city of Hamilton, have one of the most comprehensive transit systems uh, that creates more excitement and investment and uplift than one small corridor. So uh, it's how we spend money that concerns me. This is a, a bit of a different tone from what I've heard from you in the past. I mean, you, you had a, a, a number of serious concerns about about the LRT project, and, and clearly I, I understand that you still have some of those. I can hear that in, in some of the comments you're making right now. But I, I'm getting the sense, Terry, that, that, that uh, I, I don't know if you've had an epiphany here, but you seem to feel as if, look, this is a done deal, this is the way it's going to be, let's just try to work with this system to make it work. Is, has there been a change in your attitude? Well, uh, I, I think that uh, until we get the operating agreement and the transit piece, the toothpaste is already out of the tube, and putting it back is uh, is going to be much uh, tougher. So uh, the cards are played. you got to uh, uh, the best you can with the, the hand that you have, and that's where we're at now. Uh, uh, but I want to reemphasize that if, I, if this was to happen all over again, it would be putting a, a strong emphasis on the fact that for a billion dollars we can have one of the most comprehensive transit systems in the city of Hamilton that uh, meets most of the geographic needs of this community and meets the objections of the province for the same price. It concerns me when you look at value of dollar, are we really truly getting value for our dollar? But what I hear from Metrolinks and what I hear from city staff here is that, no, we're, we're too far down that road. We can't go back now. Uh, well, they, they're too far down the road in the sense of uh, 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 the, what they say, the planning process. And there has been uh, uh, a sunk cost in, in you know the works that they've done to date. No question about that. But uh, you know, we are talking about a billion dollars, and you know, at some point, for example, if the operating agreement comes back and says, "Look, for the mere price of twenty million dollars, uh, operating costs, this is what you get for your uh, LRT system," I think that uh, there's going to be a whole new look at: are, are we really getting value? Well, so for those of you on council that are of that opinion, uh, what's the strategy here? Do you try to rag the puck until the next uh, provincial election, or do you move forward on this? Well, I think what, what's going on right now, and that's how we started this conversation, is do whatever we can to optimize, uh, uh, like I said, play, play the best hand you have. Uh, so try and get uh, as many of the changes and improvements to uh, ensure that, that this LRT is the best it can be in respect to uh, optimizing its ridership and lowering the, the cost impact. But again, uh, until we get the actual details on the transit, transportation impacts as well as the, uh, the cost impacts, um, that will be the game changer. No question about it. But in your heart of hearts, you'd still like to hit the reset button. Oh, if, I, if, I had to, uh, if, we, ha- if we have a window without uh, undermining what we're doing now, but if we have a window uh, that says uh, with the province, it comes back and says, look, Here's your billion dollars. Uh, we want you to meet these objectives, and if you can meet these objectives, you get the billion dollars, and we can meet those objectives. 
I think that is a greater value for the province and for the city. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The Congress got back to work, and now it's still over two weeks before President-elect Donald Trump actually gets sworn into office as President of the United States, although he's trying to uh, rule and flex his muscles as it is. But the Congress got back to work yesterday, and and the, the hijinks that went on there after the pomp and circumstance of swearing-in ceremonies was was rather bizarre. Uh, the House Republicans decided to gut the ethics office that was set up back in 2008. Uh, Donald Trump tre- tweeted in regards to that decision and said that was the wrong thing to do. President Obama made similar comments, as, as did others, including Paul Ryan, by the way, who's the Speaker of the House. Uh, and immediately they had an emergency meeting and dropped the plans altogether, uh, which begs the question, I guess, about the influence that Trump is going to have on the upcoming Congress and uh, once he actually is in the Oval Office. Joining us to talk about this uh, this whole uh, situation is uh, Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Good morning, Barry. How, how are you doing today? Good. Happy New Year. And to you, too. Uh, it's going to be an interesting New Year. I think we can all agree on that with what's going to be happening in the United States. Let, let, let's talk a little bit about the, the actions of the Congress and, and, and their first action, I guess, as, as, as the new Congress here to basically try to kill this ethics bill. Yeah, it's the gang that couldn't shoot straight. I just <laughs> wonder what, what kind of clowns are, you know, after having been through an election which turned largely on, on an ethical imperative put forward by Trump. I, I was never convinced by it, but nonetheless, a lot of people left the Democrats, voted for the Republicans for that reason, and the first thing they do is they step right in the, the, the cow patty that they, that they had, had, had been ignoring all, all this time. It really makes you wonder what, what goes through the heads of these people. But again, uh, what one can, in my mind, I can only look at uh, American government as great theater, sort of run by clowns rather than uh, you know, ser- serious politicians. Where in God's name did they get the idea that this was going to be their first act? Well, it was just that it came up that way. I think they had uh, very much overestimated the the impact and overread the mandate, quote-unquote, if there ever was a mandate. There's a great deal of resentment toward the ethics office because, in fact, it can embarrass and at times unfairly embarrass certain members of uh, of Congress based on, on anonymous leaks. Um, so, And I suspect there's some Democrats that are unhappy with it as well. But in this climate, to, to push this forward um, was just absurd. Um, and indeed, it's a reflection of the fact that um, that that um, uh, the uh, Ryan, the um, the uh, Republican leader, uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives, doesn't really have control of the body. Um, we all there was another incident that that might have occurred. It ultimately got sidelined as well, suggesting that earmarks. There's a number of people in the Republican Congress that want to bring back earmarks. That's we can we can get into the details of that if you wish, but these were special allocations and appropriations that could be organized just by certain people to favor certain interests. This is something that was in bad odor a few years ago, was eliminated, and they're talking about bringing that back. But they've just got uh, ten years and no sense of what how the public's responding to all this, and uh, it you know it, it, it frankly just serves them right. But clearly, it's taken the shine off the new Republican Congress. Uh, Trump isn't in office yet, although he's acting like he is. And indeed, um, I think there's going to be much more uncertainty and, and lack of um, lack of confidence in in what Congress is going to be doing in the weeks to come because of the bad judgment you've uh, shown here. Now, now that you put that, that in perspective, I'm talking about bringing back the earmarks. Now I can understand why they wanted to get rid of the ethics committee because let's get rid of the oversight committee and then we can do whatever the hell let's we want, say, just yeah, like we used to do. I mean, they they think that, that, that they're sort of gods after winning winning an election, and that, look, this happens all the time. We we regularly see. Uh, particularly in the American system, because there's the checks and balances, which really mean that Congress can't control its own fate. There's other branches of government that can get in the way. 
but they they uh, they want to to think that in fact that there was a, a mandate to do anything they wanted when in fact it was anything but by the American people. Just to put this in context for those who may not know the history of of, of the uh, Office of Congressional Ethics, that was created back in two thousand eight after several bribery and corruption cases in the House of Representatives that actually resulted in some of these guys going to jail. Yep. Uh, and they said, well, we, we need to set up an oversight committee. And, and you're absolutely right, Barry. That's that's always the pushback, isn't it, at the other side? When, when there is corruption and, and when people are actually convicted of, of bad behavior, the, the immediate reaction is always, well, we'll set up an oversight committee to make sure it never happens again. Well, that lasted about six years. <laughs> yeah. Um, again, I don't think. Uh, look, there's some Democrats that got caught in the web. But, yeah. Well, there was uh, that famous case of the uh, congressman from uh, New Orleans who had stuffed uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in his freezer. Uh, you know, and again, the the sort of the, the comedic side of all of that sort of got a, a fair degree of attention. It wasn't just Republicans that were were, were being. No, 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 of course it. not. But um, yeah, they they just this was too much oversight, too much public attention, too much transparency. Even after an election, where in fact their presidential candidate was suggesting there should be more. Look, I, I'm not impressed with a lot of the uh, shenanigans in Trump's office either. I mean, here again, uh, we see uh, accusing uh, Hillary Clinton of pay for play, while his uh, his children were basically trying to sell access to him on uh, at the inauguration given the money was going to go to charity, but basically it's the same kind of thing. So there's a great deal of it. It's, it's easy to blame the other side, but there's very little self, self-awareness self of how it can impact upon you. Let's ask, I want to get into that element about, about Trump's reaction. Earlier in the program, we talked about his shots across the bow at the auto industry, and it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. And the common theme that we seem to be seeing here, Barry, is that uh, we have somebody who's about to assume the office of the most powerful individual in the world right now. I'm not quite sure this guy even understands what powers he has and what he doesn't have and what he's not allowed to do. Oh, yeah, I felt that all the way along. Look, uh, as I perhaps indicated in past uh, interviews, I, I think we're dealing with an impulsive clown who really has no, no self-awareness of anything other than he thinks that he's always right and that can never apologize for anything. Uh, he's really got the, the temperament of a 10-year-old in so many ways. Um, and indeed, I think that's going to lead to all sorts of problems down the road. But at the moment, a number of people are giving him a chance. He's got nowhere near the popularity that most incoming presidents have. There was a reflection of the fact, a poll that it was reminded of that when uh, when Obama came in, I think he had a popularity or at least a confidence level over 70 percent. Trump's under 50. Um, and so, in fact, he's got less popular support and less favorable ratings than anybody who has ever held the office during a time when polling was available. Nonetheless, this should be the high watermark. This should be sort of the honeymoon period for him. And um, I, I have a hunch he's going to blow it himself, even though he got on the right side of this issue with the Ethics Committee. And he, he sent a tweet that uh, sort of sobered up some of the Republicans in Congress. Uh, I, I think you know, I think he's an accident waiting to happen as well. But there's an element to this that uh, some people might find quite troubling, and that's the fact that, as you mentioned, Paul Ryan, who's the Speaker of the House, he got reelected uh, by this uh, by this Congress to be the Speaker of the House once again. Uh, that Donald Trump's biggest fan, he did support him at the end of the campaign, but at the same time, uh, I get the sense that there'll be some butting of heads between Ryan and, and, and other congressional leaders and the president and the Oval Office in a situation like this. But Ryan cautioned these guys not to do this, and they, they basically ignored him, yet they yep. seemed to kowtow to Trump. So that begs the question, does Ryan actually have control over his own people in the, in the, in the House? Not really. 
Uh, there's other instances of it as well. But I, look, the Republicans were trying to at least. There was a lot of opposition to Ryan the, during the previous session of Congress. Yeah. This time around, they sort of held it tight and they supported him, even though there's a lot of people that think thinks he's he's weak. A lot of people in the Republican Congress that that think he's weak and is not nearly ideological enough. The um, the old Tea Party group, they now call themselves the Freedom Caucus. Are, are very hostile to any kind of compromise at all. We're going to see it with regard to the um, the Obamacare, the, the attempt to repeal Obamacare. Uh, they're going all out, and in fact, there's going to have to be, if, if that's going to be touched at all, there's going to have to be some degree of sobriety and, and um, moderation in terms of what they're going to replace it with. No, I, I think the Republicans are seem to be out of control. You've got a president who, at least in Republican circles, is popular, but basically who who isn't really a Republican at all. He he disagrees with uh, Orthodox conservative uh, Republicans on all sorts of issues, including the debt, including uh, economic nationalism and free trade, uh, including reforming. He doesn't want to reform Medicare and um, and uh, and Social Security, even though most Republicans do. Um, I, I just think there's a whole nest of problems ahead for the Republicans running Congress. And at this point, they can't blame the Democrats because they control all branches of government. What about the relationship between Trump and Russia? Uh, and again, here we go again. There was supposed to be a security briefing. Trump says it was delayed so that the Homeland Security Office and CIA could get their story together about uh, the, 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 the leaks and, and, and the hacking that went on. Uh, they deny that. They said it was always scheduled for Friday. They don't know what he's talking about in situations like this. But Julian Assange, there's a guy who's got a reputable, you know, <laughs> uh, place in, in yeah, this whole quote, debate. This is who Trump's quoting. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, look. Trump, Trump's basically a pathological liar. I don't think he even understands that. In fact, when he says all these things, that that, that they're not true. Um, he's 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 second guessing his second guessing his intelligence sources. He's second guessing the CIA basically operating on his gut he thinks that his his own sense of whatever information is coming forward is more important than than the intelligence briefings um, and clearly uh, the uh, the CIA has made mistakes in the past that's true but indeed Trump certainly Trump's gut has not been reaccurate re- uh, for five years he was claiming uh, Obama was in fact born in Kenya when ultimately he had to change his mind on that um, I, I again this just sort of adds to the stew of I think the problems that lie ahead I, I, as I perhaps mentioned before my, my first day in uh, my American government class I suggest that American government is to be enjoyed not admired uh, it, it is a total mess and I'm not sure just what they're going to be able to accomplish they will accomplish some things but they are going to basically be, be self-contradictory you've got Trump who in fact is is not at all concerned about adding up the debt and we're uh, dealing with Republicans who have traditionally been very concerned He's talking, Trump is talking about the infrastructure program that is going to involve hundreds of billions of dollars to go into it. Republicans are opposed to that. Again, it's, it's just one, one problem after another. And uh, again, I, I, it's difficult to look at American government other than something to be enjoyed because, in fact, it, it certainly can't be respected. And I understand that there's a move afoot, and Trump, I think, is actually leading the charge on this right now to try to dis- discredit the CIA. And you, you just touched on the fact that, you know, they're saying, well, you know, these guys got it wrong. They got it wrong about weapons of mass destruction. But if you read Bob Woodward's book, Plan of Attack, that talked about how that whole idea of weapons of mass destruction was hatched, there was CIA intelligence that said they thought there might be something there. But that whole idea of going to the U.N. And, 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 and putting that case together. That was hatched in the Oval Office with Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. It was sure. not CIA material. They did not encourage that at all. Sure. No, no, no. Cheney, Cheney very much overread the intelligence remarks. But, look, look the CIA is capable of making mistakes. The, the intelligence people don't always get it right. But, look, Trump's whole op- opening to Russia, I don't understand at all, because it's got no political 
uh, leverage in the United States, and there's a lot of Republicans who are hostile to him uh, on those, those grounds as well. Putin's no fool, and Putin is, in my mind, playing Trump by flattering him. That's the one way to, to manipulate Trump, it seems. If you say nice things to him, he, he, he's very supportive of you, until you don't say nice things. I mean, that's why he can one day praise Obama, the next day criticize Obama, the next day praise Obama again. He's very transactional. He has no real core of beliefs. It's just if, if somebody is useful to you in the moment, you say nice things, and tomorrow's another day, and you may say something very different. And it's why there's so much inconsistency in ter- and really hypocrisy up and down the line in terms of the, it's the way he ran his campaign. He, he, believe, he, he listens to the people who support him, and he ignores the people who don't support him, and that can change on the, on the minute, forgetting about from day to day. Is Putin setting him up? I, I mean, we, you've talked in the past, and we've talked with, with, with other folks about what's going on in, in, uh, in, the, in Ukraine and in Crimea right now and in other areas like this. And, and there are some that are suggesting that he's softening Trump up so that when he does what he wants to do in that region, uh, that Trump's going to be basically hogtied. He's trying to, to I, I've really, of all the curiosities about Trump, uh, the, the Russia opening is, is sort of the most difficult to understand. I understand that there have been people around Trump, Manafort particularly, who is making millions of dollars from the Russians as a lobbyist uh, in Washington. I understood there were people around Trump who clearly benefited personally <clears throat> by the opening to, uh, to Russia. I've never understood, however, why Trump keeps saying the things he does. Um, and keeps criticizing his intelligence industry, uh, you know, his intelligence advisors, talking uh, about about the issues. I, I don't think it's going to have a happy ending. There will come a time that Trump will come to understand that he cannot basically be on the side of a of, of Putin who's gone into Ukraine, gone into the Caucasus, gone into Syria in the way he has, um, uh, you know, in terms of abusing civil rights. I think that is going to come back and haunt him, but he doesn't see it yet. And you're right. I, I do think that that Putin is trying to play him. And up till now, at least that side of it from Putin's perspective has been working. Of course, anything we say here is speculative because we don't know about Trump's business interests in Russia, do we? No, um, and and that's among the many questions about uh, Trump's conflict of interest. That's one that, uh, you know, many people wonder about. Um, Although, again, I, I personally find somebody who's worth so much money, how in fact he can allow himself to be compromised so much because of business interests in one particular country. He's in India, he's in Indonesia, he's in lots of Argentina, Japan. He's in all these places, and in fact, the, the one that's perhaps the most troublesome in terms of its potential conflict of interest implications is going to be the, the, the opening to Russia and doing favors for Russia in order to, to if that's what's going on. I, I, I don't know, because we, we, we do not have, and we're probably not going to get his uh, tax records that would reveal, re- reveal what's going on. It's hard for me to understand why he would allow his presidency to be compromised in this way. But, you know, maybe that's what's, what's happening. You've got to wonder about the long-range implications of this at the same time, though, Barry. I mean, if, if Trump is, is talking this way about the CIA and the FBI and Homeland Security at this stage, once he assumes that office and he's in the Oval Office and there are crisis situations, and we know those are going to happen at some point in the future, you've you got to wonder how much credibility he's going to give to the information that's going to be coming forward. Uh, yeah. Yeah, look, I, I couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, I, again, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I think this is an accident waiting to happen. It's inevitably, we don't know exactly where the, the pressure points are going to be right now, but they're going to come. And indeed, the CIA, if it feels compromised and embarrassed, has all sorts of ability to leak stories that are going to be very embarrassing to Trump, perhaps unfairly. But um, he, he's sort of, he's, he's walking into this. And uh, 
I don't know why he's allowing his advisors, whether it's Mike Flynn or his national security advisor or whoever, and because Flynn has been taking money as, a, as an advisor to foreign governments as well. I, I don't understand it. Uh, but, in fact, I think it's a, it's a problem in, in the, the months ahead for Trump. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.